While much valuable Christian literature from prior centuries has been republished in recent years, the particular Baptists have been largely ignored. Yet, their contributions in the areas of biblical exegesis, theology, history, and practical Christian living have much to offer today's church. The particular Baptists have always demonstrated a firm and faithful commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, its proclamation to all the world, and the inspiration, inerrancy, and absolute authority of all of Scripture. We at Particular Baptist Heritage Books desire to champion this God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, word-centered legacy by producing high-quality, handcrafted, hard-cased editions of Particular Baptist works, which we hope will endure for generations to come. Particular Baptist Heritage Books is a nonprofit publishing ministry founded in connection with a local church. With the help from an advisory board consisting of Calvinistic Baptist pastors and scholars, we seek to preserve the history, theology, and relevancy of our particular Baptist forebears by publishing and promoting their most important literary works. Our mission is to glorify God and to strengthen His church by furnishing Christians with the very best of the particular Baptist literary heritage. And so we invite you, come and deepen your Baptist roots at www.particularbaptistbooks.com www.particularbaptistbooks.com This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. We finished last time with the section on orthodoxy as we're talking about Baptist identity. The second area of Baptist identity is evangelicalism. When I'm speaking of evangelicalism, I'm talking about the doctrines of salvation as they were expressed in the Reformation. Evangelical is a word, of course, which comes from the word for gospel. Uh, Lutherans initially were called evangelicals because of how much they emphasized the, the gospel. Within the Reformation, there were varying degrees of recovery of a, of a pure gospel. But basically, within that framework, Baptists have, have fit what we might call into an evangelical framework of, um, of believing the gospel. One of the elements of an evangelical understanding of the gospel is that faith comes by hearing, as Luther called it, fides ex auditu. Faith comes by hearing. Grace is not communicated through sacramental elements. Uh, Luther maintained some degree of sacramentalism in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. He was not able to uh, escape all of that in my mind. It is amazing that he came as far as he did, having been as steeped in a Catholic theology as he was. But in his Babylonian captivity of the church, you have some of the most profound insights into the reasons that the Roman Catholic sacramental system should be rejected, but you also have some uh, elements in which you see that it had a grip on him, especially in his view of baptism. He has one of the most uh, 
engaging and I think powerful critiques of transubstantiation, but at the same time, he maintains a doctrine of real presence, which other theologians have called consubstantiation. Lutherans don't really like that too much, but it seems to be a word that fits pretty well. But he, he was strong on the idea that it is the preaching of the gospel that brings a person into a, a saving relationship with Christ. That somehow uh, the preaching of the gospel, the hearing of the words is taken by the Spirit and is transformed into spiritual reality in the soul of a man. Baptists have agreed with that, and I, in my opinion are perhaps more consistent with this idea of faith comes by hearing uh, than uh, some of the other Protestant groups. This leads then to the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith is a doctrine that is built upon uh, two uh, necessary manifestations of righteousness. One is the righteousness of God in forgiving sin uh, in that Jesus bore our sin in his own body on the tree so that God might be just and yet justify those who have faith in Christ. And so forgiveness of sins by the death of Christ is one aspect of justification by faith. We could not be accepted as righteous before God without condemnation uh, unless there had been a manifestation of divine wrath against our sin, which was done in Christ, which leads us back to the necessity for orthodox Christology because without a true humanity, in one who was of infinite worth, then there could not be a full propitiatory sacrifice made for sin. These doctrines are all tied together, and the Reformers expressed that very well, and, and Baptist theological writing has also been very expressive of this reality. Not only do we have forgiveness, but the second part of justification is the imputation of righteousness. That is, the law is not ignored, the righteousness of the law Complete obedience to the law is that which merits eternal life, and Christ has merited eternal life by his perfect obedience. The book of, there are many places in Scripture, of course, that indicate this and talk about it, but uh, in Hebrews 5, I think we have a very striking passage. It says that when, during the days of his life upon earth, Jesus offered up loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being made perfect. This does not mean that he was not sinless at any point in his life, but whereas Adam failed the test of absolute and perfect obedience, Christ throughout his life was tested in a way in which the perfection of righteousness was constantly increasing until finally the, the, the final tests came to him when this obedience unto death, spoken about in Philippians 2, he was obedient, yea, even to the death, obedient to death, yea, even the death of the cross, where what Jesus perceived was going to happen to him there which for him was not necessarily for him personally a moral command, but a positive command. It was certainly a moral command in that, that, uh, that wrath must be taken. But he was a just person, and so he had no moral obligation to die for sin. Therefore, he took upon himself our sin, and that positive command, which was 
which Adam failed, don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, a positive command. There was nothing immoral about eating the fruit of a tree. You could eat of all the rest of them, but that which made it uh, immoral to disobey was because God has stipulated that he not eat of that tree. That was a very easy positive command to keep. He failed. Jesus had the most excruciatingly difficult positive command, that is to die the just for the unjust, which he did. And when he consented to that in his spirit, after having sensed what the wrath of God would be upon him, consenting to that in his spirit perfected him in his test. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation, the author of salvation to those who obey him. And so, so those two aspects had to be done. And so justification by faith involves both of those things, which takes it completely outside the parameters of the sacramental system and places it solely in the person of Christ. This is why uh, the whole, one of the, the calls of the Reformation was Christ alone. Uh, it is only in Christ. He is the singular person in whom these things could be done. There is no other person that could do it. The Spirit could not do it. The Father could not do it. I'm not saying that the Spirit and the Father are not involved by perichoresis in the entire a salvific event, but peculiarly and fittingly, the person in whom this could be done was the Son of God who also became Son of Man because salvation could not come apart from that person and then the particular work that he did. Baptists have not been sloppy about this. They have understood this. They have written about it. And this is, this is an intrinsic part of, of, of their commitment to evangelicalism. Again, we look at the Second London Confession on this which says, God freely justifies the persons whom he effectually calls. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting them and accepting them as righteous. This he does for Christ's sake alone and not for anything wrought in them or done by them. The righteousness which is imputed to them, that reckoned to their account, is neither their faith nor the act of believing nor any other obedience to the gospel which they have rendered, but Christ's obedience alone. Christ's one obedience is twofold. His active obedience rendered to the entire divine law and his passive obedience rendered in his death. And so this Baptist confession in which they align themselves with evangelicals in the Protestant Reformation, Reformed evangelicals. Uh, in most of the words of this, following the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration, and yet conscientiously and with full consent, agreeing to this doctrine places them within the framework of Protestant evangelicalism on this point. Another part of evangelicalism is the immediacy and the necessity of the Spirit's work for salvation. Now, again, I, I think that there is a consistency in Baptist life on this issue that is, is not present in some other Protestants. I think that they affirm the necessity of a, of a work of the Holy Spirit. They affirm the necessity of regeneration. They affirm its immediacy. <clears throat> but... Uh, there is, we've already talked about the experiential element, there is an experiential element to it in Baptist life that indicates that this is such an action upon 
fallen people that it should be discernible at some point. Uh, there, there's, a, there's something within some Reformed groups, though they affirm this doctrine, that allows them to consider what they would call covenant seed as within the, the, the framework of the redemptive covenant, within the framework of salvation, from the time of their birth until such time as they may volitionally just reject that covenant. But they would consider them by presumptive regeneration as a part of the covenant. And, as, and so their, their, their official confessional theology would speak about the Spirit's work, the immediacy and the necessity of it, but practically there would be no point in the history of the person's life where this actually takes place except maybe in the womb. And they would point to John the Baptist, that the Spirit worked on him in the womb, and so they're converted in the womb. Now, I think we all recognize that there are, there, there are gray areas in this and how we discern the movement of the Spirit in giving regeneration. There are some things that we probably can profess to know too much uh, about that. But we have to look at the overall burden of Scripture and the overall experiences that we see in Scripture. And what we actually find is, in accord with faith coming by hearing, that there is a discernible operation of the Spirit in the hearing of the gospel that brings a person to a point of actually placing faith in Christ. And when they place faith in Christ, we assume that they've been led to that by the Spirit of God. Now again, the way the, uh, the Second London Confession says this, until a man is given life and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is dead in sins and trespasses, so is entirely passive in this work of salvation, a work that does not proceed from anything good foreseen in him, nor from any power or agency resident in him. The power that enables he, uh, him to answer God's call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it is no less than that which effected the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And then in the New Hampshire Confession of Faith, we see this. We believe that in order to be saved, we must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration consists in giving a holy disposition to the mind and is effected in a manner above our comprehension or calculation by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth, so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel, and that its proper evidence is found in the holy fruit which we bring forth to the glory of God. And then another article in the New Hampshire says, we believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces wrought in our soul by the regenerating Spirit of God. So that is, uh, that's evangelicalism, and that is a tremendously important doctrine for Baptists because of our uh, separatistic ecclesiology, as we're going to look at in just a moment. Uh, the reality of regeneration, uh, the fact that it does make this change, that this change should be uh, discernible, is right at the heart of our entire ecclesiology. And so again without trying to sound pompous or, or anything, I do think that, that, that a Baptist understanding of this necessity and immediacy of the work of the Spirit 
as it relates to Fides ex auditu, uh, is a more consistent expression than what we find in some other evangelical groups. Another part of evangelicalism is the necessity and the completeness of the work of Christ. We've already referred to this when we talked about the person of Christ. We talked about the necessity of what his obedience is, the necessity of his obedience even unto death, his passive obedience, his active obedience. Uh, and so he is the only person in whom these things could uh, take place. This is Christ alone. The Second London Confession again says, By his obedience and death, Christ paid in full the debt of all those who are justified. By the sacrifice of himself in his bloodshedding on Calvary and his suffering on their behalf of the penalty that they had incurred, he fully and absolutely satisfied all the claims which God's justice had upon them. Yet their justification is altogether of free grace. Firstly, because Christ was the free gift of the Father to act on their behalf. Secondly, because Christ's obedience and his satisfying the demands of the law was freely accepted on their behalf. And thirdly, because nothing in them merited these mercies. His uh, exact justice and his rich grace are alike rendered glorious in the justification of sinners. Now, you probably realize that what that confessional article is doing is, is, is seeking to uh, establish the reality of both the necessity and the meritorious nature of the work of Christ and the freeness of the grace by which it comes. Uh, <clears throat> there was a an article written by a Socinian the last part of the 19th century as Orthodox people were seeking to affirm substitutionary atonement, propitiatory atonement. The Socinians had rejected any idea of substitution and propitiation involved. And there were two or three books that were written that had a title uh, something like the, the Free Compassion and Love of God uh, not purchased. There would be titles like that, getting away from the idea that, that there is, that now that this has been purchased, it comes to those who are Christ's people. But God's compassion is not something that is purchased. So they're trying to represent the idea that God does not love sinners, that the orthodox position says that God does not love sinners before Christ has died that God was malevolent toward them and not loving toward them, and that Orthodox people represent Christ's death as somehow wringing out of God a permission to save them. And of course, the Orthodox people would point out that the Scripture says otherwise. The Scripture always saying God commends His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So there was a prior... There was a love that was resident within God that fixes upon the covenant of redemption and then in accordance with the means by which it must be effected sends Christ to, to die for us. And so it's really not a difficult uh, argument uh, to make. It's not a difficult misperception to, to uh, confute. 
Uh, but that's, that's one of the things they're working at in this, is that it is free grace that gives us these things, but it is also executed in such a way as it is meritorious. He has merited it for us by his death. And so the Christ meriting it is not antagonistic to God loving us before he sends his son to merit it for us. And so they give all of these reasons as to why uh, Christ's obedience uh, merited these mercies. And it is still consistent with his uh, glorious grace. Uh, the free will Baptist confession. I put this in because I want to say that Arminianism in many of its points is from the standpoint of their statement of objective realities, evangelical. I think that there is an inconsistency internally within it that we will tease out some later, uh, but that, there, that, that there, there are many within the Armenian camp that can fit within many of the aspects of evangelicalism. Here's the way the, the Free Will Baptist Confession describes the atonement. It says, As sin cannot be pardoned without a sacrifice, and the blood of beasts could never wash away sin, Christ gave himself a sacrifice for the sins of the world and thus has made salvation possible for all men. Now there's, of course, you get your general atonement in there. He died for us, suffering in our stead to make known the righteousness of God that he might be just in justifying sinners who believe in his Son. So I would be willing to point out inconsistencies and would argue for inconsistencies, but as far as their description of the necessity of the death of Christ and that it is by the death of Christ and his taking our place that God can be just in justifying sinners. I would consider that an evangelical point. Another aspect of evangelicalism, and I think that this is, again, more consistently expressed within Baptist life uh, then we find it in some other groups. And that is conversion above nurture. We look toward conversion. We recognize that if we're dead in trespasses and sins, that if we walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, uh, that uh, if we are by nature children of wrath, that we live under God's displeasure while there is enmity in our hearts and we must be reconciled, if we are changed out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of His love, if while we're dead in trespasses and sins, He makes us alive in Christ, then this means that our salvation is dependent upon the point at which the Holy Spirit creates this unity of our very persons with Christ in which He changes our mind, He changes our affections, he shows us Christ, and willingly we come to Him, we embrace Him, and all of His work. That happens cognitively. That happens experientially. It is something that happens at a point in time. It may happen in such a way as a person still has such a deep sense of their sinfulness that they may not be aware that God actually has brought them into a saving relationship to Him. Their remorse for their sin may be such and may be so long that it takes a while for them to realize that there has been a change of, of mind. I'm not saying that you have to know the point at which this happened to you. Uh, I personally 
think I can pretty much isolate the point at which, in which it happened to me, but I know many people who can't, and yet I know that there's, a, there's sort of a, a period of time in which they were struggling with these things, and their confession now is, and their lifestyle now is, that they're united with Christ. But the reality is that there is a point at which a person is changed from darkness to light. There's a point at which the Spirit comes and makes us alive. There's a point at which we move from being haters of God and hating His holiness to seeing the glory of Christ and the glory of holiness and having a predominant tendency to gravitate toward that and to love holiness and to want it, be, want, want it to be characteristic of our lives and to recognize that God is just in not receiving us to Himself except it be in the righteousness of Christ. There's a point at which that happens. And so Baptists have been, I think, much more consistent with that in, in looking to this idea of conversion as the thing by which uh, we determined who should be recognized objectively, externally, as a part of the body of Christ. Uh, so <clears throat> that is a, an element of, I think, that is consistent within all Protestants at some point, but it is more consistently expressed within Baptist confessions and in Baptist ecclesiology. All right, so that's the second point. The second point is Baptists are evangelical. It is vital for our identity as Baptists. It's not just a throwaway. It's not something which we just became copycats and just in order to sort of fit in with the evangelical confessions, we adopted that and adopted their vocabulary. It was something that was done very purposefully. It was done conscientiously. It was done in such a way as they, they wanted to be identified with that stream of, of thought. <clears throat> So the third element now of Baptist identity is Baptists are confessional and catechetical. Baptists are confessional and catechetical. Uh, Baptists have practiced the use of catechetical instruction in order to communicate with precision the truth to which the heart must be conformed in the experience of saving faith. Baptists did not believe that the giving of the catechism would automatically train a person to be a Christian. And that if you memorize it and you pass the test on the catechism, therefore you can be received into the church. But if faith comes by hearing, then giving a, a comprehensive look at what theological truth is, showing its coherence, showing the synthesis of it, placing this in the mind can become the means by which they will be drawn by the spirit of truth into a saving relationship with Christ. And this has been used very seriously in Baptist life. The Philadelphia Association encouraged the use of catechism in homes and reprinted it several times for that. Spurgeon used the catechism both as training for the young people and also uh, sometimes asked those who were inquirers to go and read certain sections of the catechism. If their experience or testimony was not as clear as it might be, they would have them read the catechism and then come back and explain to them what they learned out of it and they felt they identified with that in their experience. Richard Furman used catechism in, at the First Baptist Church in Charleston, South Carolina and would give a public demonstration of the value of the exercise. He would line the boys up on one side, the girls on the other side, uh, and then he would start with the youngest and, and eventually go back. Some of the simpler questions he would give to the young. And, and if they were a little bit quiet, he would say, louder, my child, louder, my child, and make them really speak up, giving the, the answers and, and go all the way back. And uh, 
those who experienced that uh, said that it was an exercise that was very beneficial to them. And when they came to a point of saving grace, they already had so many things present in their mind that their, their pilgrimage in sanctification and in usefulness was much more rapid than it would have been uh, without that foundation having been laid. And so, so catechism in the past has been a part of the way Baptists perceived uh, how to uh, propagate the gospel in a meaningful way uh, and, and how to maintain uh, within the family of the church, at least, uh, a sense of that uh, purity of expression of, of church membership. It gave them an opportunity to examine much more carefully the genuine experience of those who would come through a catechism process and then profess faith in Christ. But also, <laughs> confessionalism is a part of Baptist life. Baptists have done confessions in two ways. Uh, first of all, there's the personal confession that Baptists have taken very seriously. And again, if I may be allowed to say this, I think Baptists have been more consistent in this aspect of confession than other groups have been. Uh, for a personal confession to be made uh, before baptism and in front of the church, there must be two things uh, that to which a person can testify. The first is a cognitive understanding of distinctive Christian truth as received from Scripture. This is an aspect of saving faith that can become too demanding. The pastor has to be experienced. He has to understand the, uh, the nature of the person that is presenting this testimony, the maturity of the person. Uh, it calls for, I think, spirit-led skill in this, but nevertheless, it is a vital point of discerning whether or not a person has experienced grace. Uh, one pastor said, for believing in Jesus, not just about him, Peter began a journey of transformation. Peter believed in Jesus in the truest meaning of that word, namely to give one's heart to. There are those, and this is a person who's, I'm, I'm quoting this in a negative sense, you'll see this. He says, there are those in Baptist life today who say that who, say that that is not enough, meaning to give one's heart to Christ. Instead of giving their heart to Jesus and following Him in the journey of discipleship, they say we must subscribe to certain beliefs about Jesus. And not Jesus only, but also the Bible and the role of women in the church and a host of other issues. Such is the appeal of fundamentalism. Distill the truth of God into a formula, a creed that is predictable and manageable. The lavish love of God showered upon the world in Jesus Christ, so these fundamentalists say, cannot be trusted. Well, again, that's just the attempt to divorce experience from truth. It's a very easy thing to demonstrate, I think, from Scripture. If Scripture were actually taken seriously by people who say that kind of thing, that there are certain cognitive beliefs that are evidence of the new birth. He that confesses not that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh is not of God. The person that says that Jesus is Lord or believes that Christ has come in the flesh is born of God. There are cognitive aspects that are manifestations of the new birth. 
A second aspect of personal confession is the experiential acquaintance with leading truths of the gospel. Uh, within the framework of uh, this kind of personal confession, probably we should expect one to understand the condemning power of personal sin. We not, may not be able to hold them accountable for understanding everything about the federal headship and the natural headship of Adam and be able to explain that, but to consent to the fact that there is an internal operation of sin that has justly brought them under condemnation certainly should be a part of what we expect of people who have professed faith, professed that they believe the gospel. Our hopeless estate without the cross of Christ should be another part of the conviction, the experiential conviction of a person. And that uh, Jesus' work on the cross can be trusted and he is also to be obeyed as Lord because he is God. That without getting into the polemical engagements of lordship, salvation versus the modern manifestation of what is called free grace theology, a person doesn't have to understand all that, but experientially they must be brought to see very uh, easily at least that if you have trusted Christ for salvation, then you trust Him, you worship Him, and you follow Him as Lord. And the soul of a person consents to that uh, who has been born again. So that's personal confession. That's a part of Baptists being confessional. The second part is that they're corporate confessions. Uh, and the corporate confession is that which uh, sets forth the body of truth that is to be believed. The corporate confession uh, can be short within some frameworks, but then there should be implied within a short confession, a, a longer confession that tries to embrace as much of divine truth as possible that serves sort of, if I can use this word, that serves sort of as a contract. When a person comes into a church, we say, here's our confession of faith. You might not understand all of this right now. Uh, there may be questions about this, but this is how we're going to preach. This is the document that we think reflects in the most clear, gives us the most clear synthesis of biblical truth. So you will hear these doctrines coming up as we do our exegesis of Scripture. This is what we're trying to conform you to. This is what we want to go in your mind. This is what we want you to believe. And so a confession of faith serves up front as, as something toward which the preaching ministry of the church is, is driving <clears throat> a person. Uh, John Spilsbury, whom we'll talk about later, uh, sets forth four elements that he felt were necessary for establishing a true church. Uh, as he was coming out of the, separatist, the Puritan movement and the separatist movement, uh, he was, as far as we know, the first particular Baptist pastor. There may be another one somewhere that's a part of one of those churches that came out of the JLJ church. We'll talk about that later also. But as far as having a name of someone that was the pastor of a church where we know we have a particular Baptist church, John Spilsbury was that, that pastor. And in his defense of the right to start a church where there was not one, uh, he wrote a, a work called the 
uh, the right of God's people to, uh, uh, to uh, practice the ordinances of God, and another work called the lawful subject of baptism. And within this, he talks about confessions, and one of the things that he, he focuses on is the part that a confession plays in the formation of the church. And so he has four causative factors for the beginning of the church. The first of these, he says, is the Word of God, which is to fit and prepare the matter for the form. Now, they like this, this vocabulary of matter and form, which comes out of scholastic theology as it relates to their engagement with that Aristotelian thought. Just because it's Aristotelian thought doesn't mean that it's, it's wrong. There is such a thing as form. There is such a thing as matter. And so they're talking about the matter and the form. The matter of the church is what? The matter of the church are, are people who are born again. That's the matter. The form of the church is the way in which this matter should be organized, how they should function with each other. And so the first thing that you have to have in a church, as far as Spilsbury is concerned, is the Word of God, which is to fit and prepare the matter for the form. People who have read the Word of God, who have come to agree with what the Word of God says about conversion, what it says about the church, and so forth. So they are, they are fit matter now. <clears throat> the second thing that he says is the confession of faith. So this is necessary for the being of the church, as far as Spilsbury is concerned. The confession of faith, which is to declare the fitness of the matter for the form. The Word of God is that which fits and prepares the matter. The confession of faith is that which declares the fitness of the matter for the form. The third thing that he says is... <clears throat> the free and mutual consent and agreement of the particular persons upon the practice of the same truth believed and confessed, as said before. So they've believed it. That fits and prepares the matter for the form. They have confessed it. That declares the fitness of the matter. And now they come together and they have free and mutual consent to practice this truth. Now, the, the, the context of this, what, what Spillsbury is driving at here is people were asking him, how in the world can you simply initiate baptism if you say that everybody else's baptism is false? Where are you going to get your baptism from? Well, simply what he's arguing is we get it, we get it from the Bible. We're going to practice it the way the Bible says it. And the way we're going to do it is because when we have a, a church, when we have enough people who are declaring the fitness who, who are declaring this confession of faith, and they come together and they have a mutual consent to practice what the Bible says, that is the only authority that is needed to initiate then the, the church, if there has been a complete failure, which Spilsbury believed there, there had been as far as the, uh, the precise uh, biblical uh, uh, form of the church. So the free and mutual consent and agreement of the particular persons upon the practice of the same truth believed and confessed, as aforesaid. And then lastly, he brings in this, which is assumed basically all the way through. But lastly, he says, the Spirit of Christ uniting and knitting up their hearts together in and by the same truth. 
So assuming they have been brought to this truth by the Spirit of Christ in the operations in which He opens the mind to understand and believe and consent to the Word, uh, giving them that unity of heart with each other, giving them certain gifts by which they will form the church, and the Spirit of Christ then unites and knits up their hearts together in and by that same truth. Is that those are the four causative aspects of a church. And of course, he's writing within a situation in which uh, ecclesiology was being discussed and uh, the Puritans believed the church was to be formed in one way. The separatists rejected the Puritan idea and said it's to be formed in another way by a covenant with each other. And then out of, out of that separatism, Baptists arose and said, no, it's to be formed by, by baptism. Uh, but it was a journey, an ecclesiological journey, and this is the way Spillsbury says, this is how we get permission actually to begin to practice the ordinances as we think they're taught in Scripture. He re completely rejected the idea of succession. And so you see the part the confession of faith plays. It's, it, it is essential, it's vital for the very being of the church. It's not just something extra just tacked on out there, although it would be nice to have a confession of faith. No, he says, unless you have a confession of faith, you don't know if you're agreeing on these things. You don't know if you are a church. You have, you have to agree. Uh, Keach, Benjamin Keach, was very instrumental in the production of the Second London Confession and employed the confession in his own ecclesiology. And then, as well, <clears throat> with William Collins, he wrote a Baptist version of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Gill, uh, in order for the use in his church, they used the Second London Confession, but he wrote a, a sort of a shorter version uh, for uh, the use of the congregation. Uh, Richard Furman in America, the first part of the 19th century, used a confession of faith, gave expositions of the confession of faith in his church. Uh, Spencer Cohn, <coughs> First Baptist Church, New York, the church covenant stated, we agree that it is expedient that all persons who may hereafter propose to unite with us should give their assent to the summary of faith and practice and the articles of this church covenant before their uh, admission. The, as we'll point out later, that when the new connection of General Baptist was born, coming out of Socinianism and seeking to reform the church, one of the things they required was, <coughs> of all their ministers, was a, a clear statement of a conversion experience and uh, an unfeigned consent to the confession of faith, the, the New Connection articles. So they, they all believe that this having the same faith involved not just the experience of faith, not just the internal testimony of an operation, but objectified in truths that are believed. Uh, J.P. Boyce, in, in defending the use of a confession of faith, says the very duties which God enjoins upon the churches plainly suppose the application of every principle involved in the establishment of creeds. They are directed to contend earnestly against error and for the faith once delivered to the saints. They are to mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which they have learned. They are to cut off them which trouble them by the proclamation of false doctrine. The obligation thus imposed upon Christians, involves a decision of what is truth, not merely that they may believe it, but that they may repudiate those that reject it. They compel every man to establish his own standard of biblical doctrine and by it to judge others. <clears throat> now, this is not simply 
This does not mean simply that they adopt the same canon of Scripture, but by requiring assent also to the particular truths which he knows to be taught therein, the adoption of an abstract of doctrine is but the means taken by a church to meet these obligations. This development of their necessity leads us naturally to believe that doctrinal confessions were applied to this purpose in the apostolic churches. And then he, he goes on with others, but you get the point as to how Boyce is, is talking about the necessity of the use of confessions. B.H. Carroll, the founder of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in his commentary on Ephesians, says, from doctrine come morals. The relationship is philosophical and the bond is indissoluble. All the modern hue and cry against dogma is really against morals. The more we reduce the number of the creed articles, the more we undermine practical religion. Neither Christ nor the apostles predicate morals on anything other than a doctrinal foundation. And what one of the doctrines in the three preceding chapters, or in this, and he's talking about Ephesians, uh, can, <clears throat> uh, can we omit from our creed without omitting something profitable in our life? A Christian's creed should enlarge and not diminish up to the last utterance of revelation in order that each article might be transmitted into experience. A church with a little creed is a church with a little life. The more divine doctrines a church can agree on, the greater its power and the wider its usefulness. The fewer its articles of faith, the fewer its bonds of union and compactness. The modern cry, less creed and more liberty, is a degeneration from the vertebrate to the jellyfish and means less unity and less morality, and it means more heresy. Definitive truth does not create heresy. It only exposes and corrects. Of course, that was the, that was the, the, uh, the charge. If you, you have so many doctrines, then what you're going to do is you're going you're to create division. You're going to create people who can't agree. You create heresy. And Carol says definitive truth is not the thing that creates heresy. Um, it only exposes and corrects. Shut off the creed, and the Christian world would fill up with heresy, unsuspected and uncorrected, but nonetheless deadly. To hold discipline for immoralities and relax it on doctrine puts the cart before the horse and attempts to heal a stream while leaving the fountain impure. Very solemnly, I would warn the reader against any teaching that decries doctrines or which would reduce the creed of the church into two or three articles. We are entitled to no liberty in these matters. It is a positive and very hurtful sin to magnify liberty at the expense of doctrine. A creed is what we believe. A confession of faith is a declaration of what we believe. That's very similar to the first two points of, of Spillsbury's understanding. <clears throat> the church must both believe and declare. The longest creed of history is more valuable and less hurtful than the shortest. All right, so we've looked at Baptists being evangelical, uh, and we've looked now at Baptists being confessional and catechetical. Uh, the fourth point of Baptist identity, and this is where we get into Baptist distinctives, is Baptists are separate. Uh, that is, they believe in a believer's church that is not coterminous with the nation, not coterminous with the world. Uh, and that is not coterminous with a hierarchical system. We believe in a theologically integrated ecclesiology, that all of the doctrines that we have set forth 
have certain implications and manifest themselves in the nature of the church in a particular way. Not only by implication, but also by specific instruction in Scripture as to what the church is to be. One thing that Baptists have found <coughs> is that the church universal is not ethnic nor national, but is the body of Christ composed of all of the elect from all nations, from all ages. It is a new identity for the people of God. As Jesus was talking to the woman in Samaria, and they still were operating on the basis that the people of God are composed by certain rituals in certain places. And she says, where should we worship? In the mountain here? This is where our people tell us to worship. Your people say Jerusalem. And Jesus, of course, tells her, first of all, that you don't know what you worship because salvation is of the Jews. They'd cut themselves off from the main body of, of divine revelation, and therefore their worship was very uh, truncated and, and impure. And Jesus pointed that out. But he said, went on to say, but now that the time is coming and now is when those that worship God will not be in that mountain or this mountain, but those that worship God will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, in spirit there, I think, is referring to the operation of the Holy Spirit. Some interpret that, of course, to be the, the changed human spirit, which is certainly implied in the operations of the Holy Spirit. But I think he's talking here about uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in, in regeneration, moving <clears throat> uh, beyond the parameters of the ceremonial aspects of uh, Old Covenant revelation. And so the church universal is not ethnic nor national, but the body of Christ composed of all elect persons from all nations throughout the ages. The church, in a local and particular sense, is composed of visible saints, a believer's church. Now, Baptists were operating out of discussions that were happening within the English Reformation, within Puritanism, within separatism. Uh, in Cotton Mather's Magnalia Christi Americana, as he's describing uh, many of the Puritans and what they believed, he, he comes up with a, a man named John Davenport, who was the founder of New Haven, uh, whom he loved and respected, but thought perhaps Davenport might have been a little bit too uh, punctilious in the way he wanted the church to be formed. But we can see in this description of what Davenport wanted, why... Uh, Baptists saw themselves as carrying forth the Puritan ideal in forming believers' churches. Here's his description of Davenport. Our Davenport, <clears throat> conceiving it a shame that any Protestant should protest for less church purity than what the confession of a learned papist allowed, and he had just uh, uh, quoted uh, Bellarmine on the, on the church, and some, some very powerful, fine quotes from Bellarmine as to what the church actually should, should be, but at the same time considering that it's, it's uh, mixed with all kind of tares now and there's nothing you can do about it and, and so forth. And, uh, but the, what the church actually is, Bellarmine had some good things, and so Davenport didn't want the, uh, the Catholic theologian to have a more robust, healthy understanding of what the church is. And so, so Mather describes in this way, that uh, any Protestant should protest for church purity less than what the confession of a learned papist allowed, ere he was aware, to be contended for, did not at New Haven make church purity to be one of his greatest concernments and endeavors. It was his declared principle 
that more is required of men in order to their being members of an instituted church than that they profess the Christian faith and ask the visible seals of the covenant in the fellowship of the church, all of which may be done by persons notoriously scandalous in their lives from whom the command is turn away. But only such persons may be received as members of a particular church who, according to Matthew 16, 18, and 19, make such a public profession of their faith as the church may, in charitable discretion, judge has blessedness annexed unto it, and such as flesh and blood hath not revealed, and therefore making the marks of a repenting and a believing soul given in the word of God the rules of his trials. He used a more than ordinary, he used a more than ordinary exactness in trying those that were admitted into the communion of the church. Indeed, so very thoroughly, and I had almost said severely strict, were the terms of his communion. And so much, I had well nigh said overmuch, were the golden snuffers of the sanctuary employed by him in his exercise of discipline towards those that were admitted that he did all that was possible to render the renowned church of New Haven like a new Jerusalem. Well, that was the Puritan ideal. Davenport was pressing Puritanism to its length. But of course, the problem was, even with all of this rigor in wanting people to be received, who gave a credible profession and could be examined on their experience, you still had infant baptism. And so it's, it's out of this discussion then that that Baptists say, if that's what the church should be, then you can never admit on the basis of some sort of presumption that these will be saved. You cannot admit them into membership until they have and are able to testify to this kind of experience. And so that's the, that's the context out of which Baptists are developing this idea of, a, of the particular churches uh, being formed on the basis of this theologically integrated ecclesiology and the testimony given about conversion. Well, this leads then to baptism of believers only. Uh, it's <clears throat> life in the local church then also is the preeminent sphere in which we grow in grace and in likeness to Christ, fostering gracious cooperation between the members with each other, the officers with, with each other, and the proper support from the congregation for the designated elements of ministry and worship. Uh, I want to close by reading <clears throat> a statement that comes out of the beginning of, a, uh, of a, an associational uh, confession of faith and the statement of church discipline that sets forth this ideal for the local church. It's really a charming description of how they viewed what a, what a church should be. If every part, like Ephesians 4, if every part is doing its, its work, they said, could this state of things provide a whole church? We should see the deacons filling their office with internal consecration, their hands fully supplied by the church with the means of relieving the distress of the poor and afflicted in the congregation. Neither would they be reluctant in attending and conducting prayer meetings and giving such useful instructions as they could <clears throat> while their minds, uh, with below the Christian affection, to all uh, with of... Uh, while their, minds, uh, while their minds below with Christian affection to all their brethren. 
And last but not least, we should find in the pastor of such a church a mind well stored with useful knowledge, a heart drawn out in grateful affection towards the people of his charge by the numerous and various kindnesses they have bestowed upon him. We should behold him standing in their midst, deeply impressed with the awful responsibilities of his station, full of the love of souls and eagerly imparting to them solid instructions while they, with affectionate confidence, uh, hang upon his words with almost breathless silence and eagerly devour the rich feast which he furnishes. Such a community instructed by such a man could not fail to be benefited. They would observe and put in practice the wholesome instructions given by their beloved pastor. The more freely they would give of their substance to support him, the more ardently they would love and honor him. My dear brethren, we long for the realization of this happy vision. Then let us pray to God that it may be our gracious privilege to see it. Let us accompany our prayers with corresponding efforts and God will smile upon us and crown our efforts with the best of consequences. May the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So the Tuscaloosa Association in Alabama viewed what this church life should be like if all the parts are functioning properly. All right, we'll, we'll stop there. I have just a few little points to make in, in ending this part of it, but uh, our time for this session is, is over. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.